Lesson 13 for June 20 to 26. Crucified and Risen. Sabbath afternoon, June 20. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is so clear on the subject that Jesus came, he was born, he lived, he taught, he died, but he rose again. And as we study about that this week, we pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us. We pray that our walk with Jesus will be one of joy, of comfort, and of hope. We pray in his dear name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Luke chapter 24 and verse 7. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. Let's read that again, Luke 24, verse 7. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. From childhood, Jesus was conscious that he had come to this earth to fulfill his Father's will, as we read in Luke chapter 2 and verses 41 to 50. He taught, healed, and ministered with an unwavering commitment to obey the Father. Now the time had come, after celebrating the Last Supper, to walk alone, to affirm God's will, to be betrayed and denied, to be tried and crucified, and to rise victorious after death. Throughout his life, Jesus knew about the inevitability of the cross. Many times in the Gospels, the word must is used in relationship to the sufferings and death of Jesus. And there are passages in Luke 17, 22, and 24, and in Matthew chapter 16, and Mark chapter 8, and John chapter 3. He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer. He must be rejected. He must be lifted up, and so on. Nothing would deter the Son of God from going to Golgotha. He denounced, as coming from Satan in Matthew 16, any suggestion to reject the cross. He was convinced that he must go, suffer, be killed, and be raised. That's verse 21 in Matthew 16. To Jesus, the journey to the cross was not an option. It was a must. And we read about that in Luke chapter 24 and verses 25, 26, and forty six. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And verse forty six. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. A part of the divine mystery kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people, as it says in Colossians 1 and verse 26. Sunday, June 21, Gethsemane, The Fearsome Struggle. 
At the dawn of history, God created Adam and Eve and placed them in a beautiful garden blessed with all that they needed for a life of joy. Soon, something extraordinary happened. Satan appeared. He tempted the first couple and then plunged the young earth into a mighty controversy between good and evil, between God and Satan. Now, in God's own time, another garden became a mighty battleground, where the war between truth and falsehood, between righteousness and sin, and between God's plan for human salvation and Satan's goal for human destruction raged. In Eden, the world was plunged into the disaster of sin. In Gethsemane, the world's ultimate victory was assured. Eden saw the tragic triumph of self-assessing itself against God. Gethsemane showed self-surrendering itself to God and revealing the victory over sin. Question. Compare what happened in Eden in chapter 3 and verses 1 to 6 of Genesis, with what happened in Gethsemane in Luke chapter 22, verses 39 to 46. What was the big difference in what happened in both gardens? Well, first of all, let's start with Genesis chapter 3 and verses 1 to 6. Now, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And then in Luke chapter 22, the other garden, beginning at verse 39, Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done." Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Gethsemane stands for two crucial things. First, for a most vicious attempt of Satan to derail Jesus from God's mission and purpose. Next, for the noblest example of reliance on God's strength to accomplish his will and purpose. Gethsemane shows that however strong the battle is, and however weak the self is, 
victory is certain to those who have experienced the strength of prayer. As Jesus so famously prayed in Luke 22, verse 42, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. All the hosts of Satan were arraigned against Jesus. The disciples, whom he loved so much, were numb to his suffering. Drops of blood were falling drop by drop. The betrayer's kiss was just a breath away, and the priests and the temple guards were about to pounce. Yet Jesus showed us that prayer and submission to God's will give the needed strength to the soul to bear life's great burdens. So to finish today, next time you are tempted, severely tempted, how can you have the kind of experience Jesus had in Gethsemane as opposed to what Adam and Eve had in Eden? What is the crucial factor that makes all the difference between them? Monday, June 22, Judas. Question. It reads in Luke 22, verse 3, Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. No doubt, Satan worked hard to get all the disciples. What was it about Judas, though, that enabled the adversary to succeed so well with him, in contrast to the others? Luke tells how Jesus prayed alone all night in the mountains before he chose his disciples in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 16. Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself. And from them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. And Jesus believed that the twelve were God's gift to him, as John expresses in chapter 17, verses 6 to 9. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Was Judas really an answer to prayer? How are we to understand what is going on here, other than that even in Judas's betrayal and apostasy, God's purpose was to be fulfilled? As we read in Second Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8, For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. Judas, who had so much potential, who could have been another Paul, instead went in a completely wrong direction. What could have been a Gethsemane experience for him was instead like the fall in Eden. 
As Ellen White writes in The Desire of Ages, page 716, he had fostered the evil spirit of avarice until it had become the ruling motive of his life. The love of mammon overbalanced his love for Christ. End of quote. When Jesus fed the five thousand with five loaves and two fishes in Luke chapter 9, Judas was the first to grasp the political value of the miracle, and, as we read in that same page, set on foot the project to take Christ by force and make him king. But Jesus denounced the attempt, and there began Judas's disenchantment. His hopes were high, his disappointment was bitter. End of quote. Obviously, Judas, as did others, believed that Jesus would use his extraordinary powers to establish a worldly kingdom, and Judas clearly had wanted a place in that kingdom. How tragic his desire for a place in a temporal kingdom that never came caused him to lose a place in the eternal kingdom that was sure to come. Another time, when a devout follower of Jesus chose to anoint his feet with a costly ointment, Judas decried her act as an economic waste in John chapter 12. All Judas could see was money, and his love of money overshadowed his love of Jesus. This fixation with money and power led Judas to put a price tag on the priceless gift of heaven. From then on, as it says in Luke 22, 3, Satan entered Judas, and Judas became a lost soul. So to finish today, there is nothing wrong with status, power or money. The problem comes when those things, or anything, overshadow our faithfulness to God. Why is it always important to take stock of ourselves so that we don't become as self-deceived as was Judas? Tuesday, June 23, either for him or against him. For all else that it entails, the cross is also the great divider of history, the divider between faith and unbelief, between betrayal and acceptance, and between eternal life and death. There is no middle ground for any human being concerning the cross. In the end, we are either on one side or the other. In Matthew 12.30, Jesus said, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Strong words, and they can make us a bit uncomfortable. But Jesus is simply expressing what is real and what the truth entails for those who are immersed in the great controversy between Christ and Satan. We are with Jesus or with Satan. Yes, it's that stark. Question. How did the following people relate to Jesus, and what lessons can we learn from their examples that can help us in our own relationship to God and how we relate to the cross? First of all, the Sanhedrin in Luke chapter 22 and verse 53. What mistakes did these people make? Why did they make them? 
and how can we protect ourselves from doing something similar concerning how they viewed Jesus? Luke 22.53 When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. And what about Pilate? In chapter 23, verses 1 to 7. Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Then Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and said to him, It is as you say. So Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no fault in this man. But they were the more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man was a Galilean, and as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's just jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. And the same chapter Verses 13 to 25. Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people, said to them, You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him. And indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him, for it was necessary for him to release one of them to the feast. And they all cried out at once, saying, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city, and for murder. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again called out to them, but they shouted, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Then he said to them the third time, Why, what evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. And he released to them the one they requested, who, for rebellion and murder, had been thrown into prison but he delivered Jesus to their will. What led Pilate to say, I find no fault in him, and at the same time sentence him to be crucified? What can we learn from his mistake in failing to do what he knew was right? And then, what about Herod in Luke chapter 23, verses 6 to 12. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man was a Galilean, and as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now, when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with 
each other. And the two thieves, later on in the chapter, chapter 23 of Luke, verses 39 to 43. Then one of the criminals who was hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And he indeed justly, for we receive the due rewards of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Two sinners look at the same cross and have two different reactions. How does this scene reveal the either-or aspect of salvation? That is, we are either on one side of the great controversy or on the other. Wednesday, June 24, He is Risen. Early Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb with a single purpose, to complete the burial ritual. Despite the time they had spent with Jesus, they had not truly understood what was to happen. They were certainly not expecting an empty tomb, or to be told by heavenly messages, as we read in Luke 24, verse 6, He is not here, but is risen. Question. In the first few chapters of Acts alone, there are at least eight references to the resurrection of Jesus. Why was the resurrection of Jesus so pivotal in apostolic preaching and in the faith of the early church? Why is it still so crucial for us today as well? Well, first of all, Acts one twenty-two, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And Acts chapter 2 and verses 14 to 36. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I'll pour out of my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my Spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapour of smoke, the sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified 
and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. For he is at my right hand, that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You have made me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would rise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And Acts chapter thirteen verses fourteen Acts chapter three, sorry, verses fourteen and fifteen. But you denied the Holy One and the just, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which you are witnesses. And Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. Now, as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about five thousand. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and the elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And Acts chapter 4 and verse 33. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And chapter 5 verses 30 to 32. 
The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and saviour, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Why was the resurrection of Jesus so pivotal in apostolic preaching and in the faith of the early church? Why is it so crucial for us today as well? The women were first-hand witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. They rushed to share this good news with others, but no one believed them in Acts chapter 24. Instead, the apostles dismissed the greatest story in redemptive history as idle tales of exhausted and grieving women. How soon they were to learn just how wrong they were. The resurrection of Christ is foundational to God's redemptive act and to the totality of Christian faith and existence. The Apostle Paul makes that very clear in 1 Corinthians 15.14. If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your victory is also empty. It is empty or vain because only in Christ's resurrection can we find the hope that is ours. Without that hope, our lives here end, and they end for eternity. Christ's life didn't end in a tomb, and the great promise is that ours won't either. George Eldon Ladd writes in The Theology of the New Testament, published in 1974, and this is a quote from page 318. If Christ is not risen from the dead, the long course of God's redemptive acts to save his people ends in a dead-end street, in a tomb. If the resurrection of Christ is not reality, then we have no assurance that God is the living God, for death has the last word. Faith is futile because the object of that faith has not vindicated himself as the Lord of life. Christian faith is then incarcerated in the tomb along with the final and highest self-revelation of God in Christ. If Christ is indeed dead. Thursday, June 25, All Things Must Be Fulfilled. Question. Read Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 49, which tells us about events immediately after Christ's resurrection. In the various encounters, what does Jesus point to in order to help these people understand what happened to him, and why is that so important even for us today in our witness to the world? Let's begin Luke chapter 24, verse 13. Now behold... Two of them were travelling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained, so that they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem, and have not 
known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mightily indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, the certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther, but they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us, while he talked with us on the road, and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour, and returned to Jerusalem, and found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them, and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened, and supposed they had seen a spirit, And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it, and ate in their presence. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding, that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. The resurrection of Jesus should have been enough evidence to establish the Messiahship of Jesus. Beaten and brutalized before being crucified and eventually pierced, Jesus was then wrapped and placed in a tomb. 
even if, as some have ridiculously suggested, he had survived both the cross and the burial, a bloodied and battered and weakened Jesus, somehow staggered from the tomb, would not have been anyone's idea of a victorious Messiah. Nevertheless, there Jesus was, alive and well. He walked several miles with the two men on the road to Emmaus, and yet, even then, before revealing who he was, Jesus pointed them to the Scriptures, giving them a firm biblical foundation for their faith in him. Then, when he appeared to the disciples, showed them his flesh and ate with them, Jesus did more. He pointed them to the Word of God. Luke 24, verses 46 to 48, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Here, too, Jesus not only pointed to the Scriptures, besides the evidence that he was actually alive and among them, but he used the Scriptures to help them understand exactly what had happened to him. Also, he directly linked his resurrection with the mission to preach the gospel to all nations. So, even with all the powerful evidence proving who Jesus was, he always pointed his followers back to the Word of God. After all, without the Word of God among us today, how would we know of our calling and mission to preach the gospel to the world? How would we even know what the gospel was? The Bible is, then, as central to us today as it was to Jesus and his disciples. And so, to finish today, how much time do you spend with the Bible? How does it impact how you live, the choices you make, and... How You Treat Others Friday, June 26 from the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, an Ellen White quote from Volume 9, page 1132. The significance of the death of Christ will be seen by saints and angels. Fallen men could not have a home in the paradise of God without the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Shall we not then exalt the cross of Christ? The angels ascribe honour and glory to Christ, for even they are not secure except by looking to the sufferings of the Son of God. It is through the efficacy of the cross that the angels of heaven are guarded against apostasy. Without the cross, they would be no more secure against evil than were the angels before the fall of Satan. Angelic perfection failed in heaven, human perfection failed in Eden, the paradise of bliss. All who wish for security in earth or heaven must look to the Lamb of God. And that brings us to our two discussion questions for this week. One, as Christians we have to live by faith. That is, we have to believe in something that we can't fully prove, that we don't have direct eyewitness evidence for. Of course, people do that all the time in a lot of things. For instance, in the context of science, one author wrote, In summary, we have direct evidence for a surprisingly small number of the beliefs we hold. Nevertheless, 
We have many very good reasons for our faith, for the things we believe in. In the context of the Great Commission, for instance, look at what Jesus said to the disciples in Matthew 24:14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, think about the time that Jesus spoke these words. How large was his following at the time? How many people believed in him or even had any understanding of who he was and what he was going to accomplish? Think, too, about all the opposition that the early church was to face for centuries in the Roman Empire. Keeping all these facts in mind, discuss just how remarkable a prediction this statement of Jesus was and how it should help us to trust in the Word of God. And question two. Dwell on the Ellen G. White passage above. How does this help us to understand just how universal the issues of sin really are? Even the angels are not secure except by looking to Jesus. What does this mean? Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled New Life from Death and it's by Masaki from Japan. As a mortician, I'm surrounded by death every day as I prepare bodies for burial and direct funerals. For years, I've watched people mourn the deaths of loved ones and go through the ceremonies to assure that the deceased have peaceful and speedy journeys from this life to the next. Japan is largely secular, but most people honour their ancestors by prayers, elaborate ceremonies and worship rituals. At certain times during the year, families visit their ancestral burial sites and offer gifts and prayers. My family was no different. We prayed to our ancestors. As I watched the leaders of various religions conduct funeral ceremonies, I noticed that most funerals involved great sadness and much weeping. But I noticed that during Christian funerals, sorrow was tempered with hope. They seemed to have faith that they would see their loved ones again. No such hope existed for most people. I began to wonder whose beliefs were correct. Just where did the spirit go after a person died? I began watching Christians more closely. Christians, I quickly saw, faced death with a deep-rooted faith in their God. Their pastors showed great compassion toward the grieving family and spoke of their hope to see their loved ones again. One day I was in charge of a funeral in a Seventh-day Adventist church. After my preparations were completed, I sat down alone in the empty church and let the peacefulness of the sanctuary wrap around me. I thought about the times when death came close to me, the time when I almost drowned in the ocean, and the time I should have died in a motorcycle accident. As I remembered these experiences, I was surprised that instead of feeling fear, I felt a deep peace. I sensed that I was not alone. The next morning I visited the Adventist pastor. We talked about God and the pastor assured me that Jesus wanted to be part of my life. I asked him to help me learn more. I was eager to know how the Christian faith gave its followers such hope. 
We studied together for several months, and I learned a lot about the God who not only created us, but came to live and die so that we could live with Him forever. I had never heard of such love. I prayed my first prayer, and God filled my heart with a peace and joy I had never known. My family, friends and colleagues noticed the changes in my life and asked what had happened. I told them that I had met the living God, Jesus Christ, and had accepted His gift of salvation. Now, when I conduct a funeral for someone who is not a Christian, I want the grieving family to notice a difference in my life. I continue studying the Bible and learning about God's love, so I can answer people who ask about my faith and know how to encourage the sad families I meet every day. Adapted from a story by Charlotte Ishkanian. Your reader for this week's lesson has been Dr. Percy Harold. This lesson is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Remember, God is always faithful.